Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for joining us. My name is Keith Hochberg. I'm in charge of the infrastructure organization at Fitch Group. Joining me today. Hi, Chris Lawler, Director of Cloud Engineering at Fitch Group. And Clark Whiteway, Cloud Enablement Leader at CloudReach. So I'll introduce Fitch Group. Um, we are majority owned by the Hearst Corporation. We have three distinct businesses within Fitch Group. Fitch Ratings, which is our highly regulated company, what we're predominantly known for. That's our credit ratings agency. Uh, they provide research as well. We also have Fitch Information Services. They deliver uh, financial data and a delivery platform called Fitch Connect. And then we also have Fitch Learning, uh, which offers educational services to the financial community. For today's purposes, we are going to focus on how we partnered with CloudReach to plan our migration, mitigate risk, execute on the migration, accelerate it when we needed it to. And our hope is that you take back uh, something to make your own journey successful. And for anyone not familiar, uh, CloudReach is a global uh, cloud consulting and product company uh, where we are a AWS premier partner in both North America and Europe. So we decided to partner with CloudReach because we wanted to bring in seasoned veterans. We are highly regulated. We wanted to identify risk and manage that risk while we migrated uh, in 2017. So I'll walk you through our two-year journey. What's interesting here is that we spent the first year essentially planning, building our foundational architecture. We're going to use this timeline to drive much of this session. And the first year, after the first year, we built the foundational architecture, moved a lot of our DevOps tools out, um, the Atlassian suite, which are foundational. About this time last year, we executed on our pilot. And we decided to start with our flagship website, FitchRatings.com. It went successful. Um, it, it, we saw performance improvements. Um, we were here last year listening to a lot of these sessions. And then we started to think about our 2007 timeline and how we had over 100 applications to move in six months. Uh, we had to reduce the size of our data center uh, in a way to offset the AWS spend. And we partnered with CloudReach in our New York office uh, in December. We had created a pre-migration checklist where we go through a battery of tests such as multi multiple availability uh, zone testing, QA sign-off uh, in production in AWS, um, where there were data transfers, uh, making sure that the source equaled the destination, change control tickets were, were filed, and we felt that we had a good cookie-cutter process to create this migration factory. And that's how we essentially migrated uh, applications in six months successfully. And now today we're running our operations out there, thinking about our business. How do we transform the way we deliver business services to Fitch Group? So the first six months were spent discovery uh, and, and planning with CloudReach. We assessed our environment. We thought about our application landscape. We grouped our applications, uh, created a migration schedule in waves, thought about the cost, um, again, the risks, and then plans to mitigate that risk. Then we started to socialize that with our executive team. Um, and the executive buy-in was critical, as we are highly regulated. And we needed to instill confidence in, in them that we understood what we were doing and that there was business benefit. So our business case, the obvious ones are improving reliability, resiliency, security, reducing cost. Um, but then we started to think, well, we're in 30 countries. We have an analytical community and a development community that we support. Uh, we are geographically dispersed. And so how can we leverage AWS services to improve the business services that we deliver to Fitch? And when you think about what an analyst does, horizontally scaling compute for their modeling needs, bringing data closer to them, bringing other workloads closer to them in other geographical regions was really attractive to us. And so as we thought about the migration, CloudReach was a really strong partner. We had talked to them about the migration factory, and we have a really good cookie cutter process that we used, which Chris and Clark are going to walk you through. Thanks, Keith. Um, so I'm going to talk through the next six months, and this is uh, really when we got our team and our foundational architecture ready for running in AWS. So um, you know, first off, I do want to acknowledge you know, as, as any sort of head of an infrastructure team, you know, we stand here on the shoulders of all the great engineering work that happened, not only in my team and Clark's team, but also 
the whole of Fitch's IT group in supporting these migrations. So, you know, we took six months, which sounds like a long time to build foundational architecture, but what you have to understand is some of these tools were very new at Fitch. Uh, Chef, for instance, we didn't have strong configuration management discipline going into all of this. So the first three months of this six-month period of building foundation were really building out des and designing the architecture we would build on. What do VPC designs look like? You know, as Keith mentioned, we have multiple different business units. We have heavy regulations on our analytical community and our ratings business, but we don't for Fitch Information Services. So we needed to understand how we could design to keep the ratings business you know, really secured, but allow FIS, uh, the Information Services team, and other components and teams move faster or have more rights. So you know, we, we partnered with CloudReach. We designed you know, multiple account structures. We did isolate our accounts by production level, which is interesting. So you know, dev, non-prod, and prod are actually different accounts, different IAM domains, so we can use sort of implicit uh, privileges within those accounts uh, to make things a bit easier. We had a great seed uh, for DevOps. We have a strong DevOps team out of our Chicago office. Uh, and we had a lot of these tools just coming into play when we started this journey. Almost the whole of the Atlassian suite uh, we, we leverage. But also, you know, again, as I mentioned, Chef, we started automating our OS builds with Packer. Um, you know, and we, we also started, you know, again, digging into our plans of which applications we would move in what order and what the interdependencies were. The other thing is we didn't have much experience at Fitch with AWS or cloud in general. And when you look to partner with an organization like a CloudReach, you have to know what you're going to look for at the end of that engagement. For us, we wanted to learn how to fish. And CloudReach was awesome in helping train our internal people as we went through this journey. For other organizations, that might not be what you want. You might want managed services. So that's something as you approach this to really think about, you know, how do we want to run when they leave your office? And what do you need to do to get yourself ready for that point? The next three months of our journey was the build-out phase. So again, this is actually when I joined Fitch. Uh, a lot of this work had happened before. I came from another organization that we were in heavy use of AWS. We started building up a dedicated team. We took those early specialists and moved them over so they could focus just on AWS work, just on chef work, and so forth. And I think that's incredibly important if you do have a major paradigm shift in your organization is separate out those people who are working in this discipline so they don't have to deal with fixing your VMware environment or your SAN anymore. We also, again, as Keith mentioned, we had heavy checklist builds. So how do we, you know, how do we meet all of the criteria for every application we move? How do we make sure we're ready for the SEC when they come to us to have conversations about our core ratings workflow and how well secured those are. Um, you know, we continued to iterate and write recipes and stack templates. And for us, you know, we started leveraging and learning a tool that actually CloudReach developed called Scepter, which you can find on their uh, GitHub, to use uh, to orchestrate our cloud formation stacks. And we also you know, set out the basics for financial reporting, which is a theme I'm going to get back to later in this talk, because I think it's one of the great strengths of AWS is your ability to report on financials, but it's something you have to go into thinking about how you're going to do that. So, you know, again, we spent six months on foundation. You know, a lot of companies are going to be are up, and, you know, last year when we heard a lot of companies talking about their migrations, they'll tell you, hey, we did this in a year, and for some companies, you know, they may have just moved faster than us. We could tell you we moved in six months, but this is a two-year two journey. All the preparation made that six-month move of 100 applications feasible. And I think, you know, I've, I've covered most of the stuff on here, but, you know, again, we needed to make sure that our DevOps tool chains, everything worked right before we started. So with that, we went into our pilot phase and moved one of our premier applications. And what we chose was actually FitchRatings.com, our public-facing website. And as a ratings agency, this is actually one of our most highly regulated components. This is where we publish our ratings of various debt obligations. 
This is what we have to provide the financial markets. So why did we choose to move that first? There's a few factors in that decision. One is a lot of the early adopter teams happened to be within the same organization that supports this site, and there was eagerness in that organization, and it is a heavily interdependent and multi-component website. But also, we think it's important to take some of your crown jewels and move those out there first. Because if you can do that, and you can go back to your executives and say, not only was this successful, but it's working better than ever, you're gonna do, you know, you're gonna instill significant confidence in the rest of the project. And also you instill confidence in the rest of your team. If you say, oh, you know, we got this dinky little service out there and it's running well, well, you're still gonna be nervous about that major service when it comes up in a few months. So, you know, I think that's something that if you are looking at this, don't be scared if you've done your homework in advance. So with that, you know, as Keith mentioned, at reInvent last year, we'd spent a solid you know, 15 months getting to the point where we'd only done a pilot. We did need to rethink and start moving faster. So with that, I'm gonna pass it to Clark, who's gonna talk through the migration factory. Thank you, Chris. Um, so as Chris and Keith both mentioned, coming out of reInvent last year, there was a renewed focus on the migration and developing a new approach to accomplish both velocity and quality, especially with the compliance requirements that Fitch has. So the key strategies that we had when forming this approach uh, were velocity, um, the extensive testing and com compliance requirements that I mentioned. Uh, we also had a mantra of just move it so as to build up the team's confidence and uh, momentum in the team. And then, super important, having regular stakeholder meetings with Fitch leadership. For us, that was once a week uh, to always keep them informed of what the status is, as well as if any risks were to come up, we were able to mitigate them quickly. So we also wanted to structure the team, being a consultant um, separate from Fitch, we wanted to structure the team to accomplish both the velocity and quality that I mentioned, but also the teach to fish aspect and upskilling of Fitch uh, that has been mentioned multiple times. Uh, so what we did is we created an AWS quote unquote uh, program office uh, where we worked on the migration factory hand in hand with the new cloud team that Chris just mentioned. But it's also important to remember that even if you're using a consultant, there are gonna be aspects uh, of the cloud journey that your organization is gonna have to own because I love CloudReach to death, I think we do everything great, but we are not experts on Fitch ratings compliance, uh, so disaster recovery, testing, security, stuff like that. Um, those teams need to be involved, even if they're not part of the cloud team. Uh, this is a full journey, as Chris has mentioned. So what was our approach? Uh, we used the migration factory approach, and for anybody that is not familiar, this diagram represents a super simplified version of what it is. Uh, the t in basic terms, the, the top line is represented there, so you pick a X number of apps, and the columns represent sprints. So in the first sprint, you have a wave of X number of apps that are in the LLD and design phase, LLD standing for low-level design for us. Then you hit sprint two, and that wave goes down to the build phase while a new wave comes into design. And then the third sprint, uh, there's go live for the original wave, second moves into build, and a new wave into design. And then kind of continues in perpetuity from there. So what are the benefits of uh, this type of approach? As a project manager, I saw it as having more applications in flight were more opportunities to go live. In a traditional kind of waterfall grouping, say you had five apps that were set to go live at whatever date, and four of them had been ready for two weeks. They wouldn't go live because that's what the schedule said, and you might not have had the processes and structure in place to go live when they were actually ready. Uh, but with this type of structure, we have the processes, the people, the structure in place that we're going live every week. So if something's ready, we just move it up and everybody's happy. Um, again, as a project manager, this does come with some complexity. I mentioned this diagram is super simplified, and it is, uh, because each application we came up with, uh, Keith mentioned, standard set of tasks that each application needed to go through to both migrate to the cloud as well as um, 
match all the compliance requirements. So uh, how we, and this number of tasks with the number of people involved, uh, you know, my team, the Cloud Reach engineering team, the Fitch engineering team, QA leads, UAT leads, et cetera, that's a lot of tasks at any one time, especially if you've got 30 apps in uh, the multiple work streams. So we solved this with automation. Uh, this is probably hard to see, but the slides will be available later. Um, what we did was we created an automated script in JIRA where each application was an epic. And for anyone that's not familiar with JIRA, an epic is basically just a parent of subtasks. And what myself or anyone else would do, you enter the application name, you enter in who's the QA lead, who's the Fitch engineering lead, who's the Cloud Reach engineering lead. And these tasks automatically populate and are created assigned to that correct person. So as long as your project team is owning their tasks and putting them in the correct place in work streams, then you can create dashboards. And it's really powerful for uh, reporting as well as just reduces an enormous amount of overhead. So if you're going through this, I would highly recommend that approach. Moving back to this slide, um, I spoke about the approach that we put in place in actual execution. I mentioned earlier we had a migration day every week. This was powerful for a few reasons. Um, you know, some weeks we would go live with 12, which was awesome, and some weeks we'd go live with one, but we'd always, always try to go live with at least one just to create that momentum. The team feels like this is happening, this is an attainable goal, um, so I'd highly recommend that as well. One thing to keep in mind is just like the scenario I mentioned earlier where uh, you move apps up because they're ready, this approach comes with the flip side of that as well, which is there may be an app where you plan that you're going to go live with five, and it looks like this week only, you can only go live with four because one of them had deep institutional knowledge that required a lot of research or it's business critical or whatever. You just move that app to the next wave the next week or the next sprint, and it's not that big of a deal. It doesn't mean your program's in amber or red. Um, leadership doesn't freak out. Everyone knows that you're seeing the forest from the trees and you know what your, your mission is and it's still accomplishable and just moving it to the next week isn't that big of a deal. Um, that kind of mindset also builds trust with your team and staff morale, because as um, Chris mentioned and Keith, the people are the important part of this. You can put all the processes, automation, and approach in place, but people are doing the work. And so having happy people is super important. And at, if you're gonna ask them to work overtime or work on weekends, it should be for very business critical reasons, not just because you said, I'm gonna hit an X number this week and I have to hit X number. Uh, lastly, this has been mentioned a lot, but it's because it was super important. Uh, we are consult consultants, we are not Fitch employees, so we are not gonna be there forever. So we wanted to leave with a deep library of documentation of what we had built, how we had built it, um, and teach them how to continue creating that documentation as well as literally working side by side multiple times, whether it's troubleshooting, building, or migrating uh, for that knowledge transfer. So this is just a quick snapshot of um, January, February, March, April, May were the main ones of the migration. As you can see, some were 12, some were a lot lower. There was a couple zeros in there, but um, we got it all done and I think it was a really good success. So, I will turn it back over to Chris to talk about operating in the cloud once you're there. Great, thanks Clark. So this is a, the newest part of our journey and only the last few months that we've been there is now that you know, we've migrated the bulk of our applications to AWS, how do we intend to operate there and how do we enhance business service delivery at the end of the day? So. I'm gonna cover some of our operating principles and maybe some core disciplines that if you're looking to run an AWS, well, I think they're valuable. Hopefully you'll see some value in some of them. Now, you know, this is a, a pretty tired uh, analogy, but this, this move from pets to cattle, you know, we did still have a lot of hand-built, very loved systems or a lot of tribal knowledge as well of how these bespoke systems were built. You know, we weren't a chef shop when this started. We still aren't 100% touchless on a lot of the things we do. But for the applications we moved in all of our core disciplines, we are. And getting that mind shift away and starting to work with your developers on 
you know what, you may not know the name of your machine long term. That's important and it's something that you have to start pushing out in your organization. This isn't just about the infrastructure team changing over to know how to move to AWS and how to run in AWS. Another thing, and this is, this is more of a personal one for me, is always address the problem first when you're looking at these. You know, there's so many tools, so many cool vendors here that you're gonna hear talk, and I mean, some mind-blowing stuff this morning. There's a lot of great solutions out there, but at the end of the day, we're engineers. We have to understand the problem we're looking at first, figure out what process or what internal teams are gonna support that, and then figure out what tool chains fit that problem. Another one, you know, Git and version control, and I think most infrastructure teams have started to finally own this. This is, is super critical to everything you do. If you want to switch to infrastructure as code, really, the version control, whether it's Git or, or Subversion still, if people use that, um, this, is, this is hugely critical. Now you can track all of those changes to your infrastructure. But with that, you know, and here we're, we're really beholden to the Atlassian suite, you can also start linking the stuff together. So it's not just, oh, where did I put that knowledge base document? And I think somebody did a change in this change control ticket that related to it. It's, it's now, we have an issue in JIRA or a defect. We went to address it. We created a branch through that JIRA ticket in our Git, and we start, and that branch actually went to production. We see the merge, we know who made that change. And if we wanna roll back, we can also roll back that change. We go back to the JIRA, and that JIRA is also linked to you know, our Confluence doc. Again, a lot of Atlassian for us, but it doesn't matter the exact tool set. Many of these tool sets can be linked together now, and for infrastructure organizations, as you look to transform, I'd say this is, this is a hugely important part of that transformation. Now, you know, AWS and, I mean, a lot of tool sets give you the ability to tag your stuff. I'm a big fan of tagging and metrics and you know, any metadata we can get about our systems so we can programmatically address them and look at them from all different aspects. This becomes hugely important in cloud financial work down the road when you're actually having conversations about how much does application X cost us to run but it also allows you to look at performance metrics, all sorts of things that you might not have looked at before. And maybe there's some finance people here, so I apologize, but you know, most of us don't wanna to talk to finance regularly if we can help it. I'd say partner early with your financial team and regularly, if they know what's happening, well, they don't ask you random questions, but also, you have such great tooling now to look at these applications and the cost of them in AWS that you can have conversations that you know, they'll keep asking you for more because you can start slicing and dicing these costs in really interesting ways. And at the end of the day, you have to meet your budgets. So knowing your financials is an important part of that. And you know, for us, some of the tools of the trade, just things we use, you know, again, we use Chef, but configuration management, no matter the tool, is, is incredibly important for auto-scaling and all of these things as we move to AWS. For CloudFormation, we're not completely serverless now, and even where we are, we still use CloudFormation to understand and deploy all of our components as interrelated stacks. We actually, as I mentioned, use CloudReach's Scepter as a calling framework for that to provide arguments to all of our CloudFormation stacks get all of those argument files together, getting Git, and allow you to see the interdependencies between these stacks that make up whole sets of environments and launch them in sequence with those dependencies in place. There are some other ways to do this, meta stacks and stack sets now in AWS that we want to delve into further, but Scepter's been awesome for us and you know, we, we just use it further and further. For us, you know, I think another one that's been interesting in, in just my journey personally in infrastructure is I used to say when hiring people, I don't really care what language you script in as long as it's one of the standard ones and you're pretty good at it. I've been more prescriptive lately. I think that as you do more and more work there and as you become, at an, on the infrastructure side at least, more of a development team, consolidating to a few languages has actually helped us. 
You know, for us, we're trying to consolidate around Python and PowerShell. I think, you know, it, that, that is a powerful thing at times, making sure that everyone has a standard set of knowledge about, you know, the discipline and a certain knowledge within those scripting languages so that you can work as a team and it's not just, let me go find Joe who wrote this Perl script. He's the only one who can read his writing. Other than that, you know, as we look at DevSecOps uh, and how we do compliance and moving from, you know, th quarterly compliance jobs where I'm trying to find password policies on individual servers to compliance operations where I always know what the compliance situation is in my environment, AWS config's been huge for us. And actually, this is a big one that um, is maybe missing a little bit in the slide about our journey. As we looked at the tail end of our cloud reach engagement, the last few months weren't just about migrating the apps. I mean, that's hugely important, but there was certain tooling we wanted in place and certain things we wanted to leverage their expertise for before they were out the door. So we had them build a framework for AWS config rules that we consulted on what config rules we wanted, whether that be looking for untagged volumes, as they're created, looking for S3 buckets as they're created or modified to see if permissions have been open incorrectly, to you know, IAM policy change uh, checks and so forth. Amazon has a great tool set of standard uh, or sort of pre-baked config rules. I'd recommend you guys look at them. You know, scanning tools are cool, and they tell you, you know, daily, weekly where you are, but this ability to have reactive instantaneous feedback on changes is huge. And Lambda, you know, with config rules, and Lambda in general on schedule is a great other way to start checking through, you know, using Bodo to start scanning for certain things in your environment. Now, you know, I've sort of covered some of these uh, components, but when we look at, you know, again, some of what I see the core disciplines in, um, in my team's operations in the cloud, you know, infrastructure as code, again, you know, the, sh the shift to version-controlled infrastructure change, and infrastructure change not by hand, but through tools like Chef and CloudFormation is huge. But there's a lot of other things that we have to do within the organization. One of these, again, is, is our monthly financial operations. This is something I host with finance teams, leads from each of your development organizations, because at the end of the day, those development organizations are the ones building services that cost money, and also and leads from you know, database teams and all the, all the teams that own services that you're deploying on AWS. Again, this, this heavy tagging of your infrastructure, and for us, we use Cloud Health to report on this and build fancy graphs and so forth. There's a wealth of tools out there, even native AWS ones, but more, again, the discipline of, of having those monthly meetings, having daily reports, at least to your management on the side, and making sure you're always keeping an eye on this, it leads to some really interesting conversations. You might have a service that, as an infrastructure team, you kind of always knew only one or two people ran it, but you could squeeze it into VMware, and it was hard to account for the exact cost of that service. Now you can put in front of your executives and the development teams, well, that service costs us 3,000 a month to run in AWS. What is the human investment to move those last few people to service Y that does very similar things, or to adapt service Y for those last few use cases? That becomes a much more clear conversation with their teams that wasn't really possible you know, when infrastructure was just seen as a cost center to your company that had a general bucket of uh, available dollars. Another thing to me is, is this sense of metric-driven engineering. On the service side, you know, metrics are great, right? We, we want to know how many users are currently in a pipeline, how fast are they getting through a pipeline, you know, are there currently constrictions in that? Do we need to, you know, raise alerts or scale out as a result of that? But there's other metrics, too, that are really important. You know, if you work with JIRA or any of these tools, you know, no one loves tracking their time. And a lot of people see tr time tracking as something where 
oh, this is how they're going to push efficiency in our organization. I think on the infrastructure side, it's incredibly powerful to have these human metrics about where you spend your time. So when you move to AWS and you're tracking these, you know, your issues or defects in JIRA, this is the best way to find your automation opportunities. So where do we spend time on things that just keep breaking? This application's down every Tuesday. There's a lot of tools to aggregate all this data, like PagerDuty, SumoLogic, Splunk. There's many ways to do it, but I think, you know, again, this power of understanding your team's time and exactly where you're spending that time is huge. Other than that, you know, when we look at DevSecOps, we're not everywhere we want to be. I would say, you know, you're at reInvent. We had awesome product launches this morning, but, you know, one talk, and actually last year that I sat through that was you know, really cool for me was listening to Amazon talk about how they do compliance operations in real time, how they do mapping of controls to all the compliance regimes that they have to hit. This is, you know, a great opportunity for you guys, and you know, hopefully you take something useful from us, but I know there's a lot of sessions out there that also have useful information. Find those sessions that match what your company needs and see how other people are doing it, what bruises they take. You know, for us, we were a little bit slow right during the pilot phase. We were looking at applications that were going to be moving in, uh, you know, May, back in December of last year, and talking about how do we hit that May timeline. And that's when we realized we weren't looking at all these small applications that we knew were, were easy to move. Well, let's get those in the pipeline. Let's make sure they keep moving. And as you're on this journey, you make sure you have those you know, sort of reflective conversations as often as possible. And if you're currently on this journey, you know, this is a great week for it, or at least it was last year for us. But that's, you know, again, don't be scared to say, this is broken. This is the whole point of being in the cloud. Fail fast. Know what's wrong. Move along. Now, you know, something that for us we're still working on is service optimization. You know, as you launch and start using new services, or as you move your sites out there, you, know, you might want to give it a little extra horsepower to make sure that it moves right the first time. Or sometimes you're having a conversation with developers and they're like, well, it had 16 gigs on VMware, just give me 16 gigs on AWS. Maybe migration time's not the time to try to shave off those last few gigs and pennies put in place a process instead to revisit performance after you move. I mean, good engineering in general should be an iterative thing. You shouldn't be changing too many variables at once. So unless you're rewriting your application, move things with less friction if you can. Automate them if you can while you're there, but don't change too many parameters. Build in a cycle, and for us it was a multi-week process where you look back, you say, okay, you know what, these are running at 20% CPU. And this is incredibly important on the financial operations side as you look towards reservation, knowing that you can reserve only what you need requires that you've optimized in advance. Another part of service optimization, though, is also bringing on new services. So you know, with that, I want to talk about like, how, we, how we want to evolve our discipline. As I said, we're not 100% automated on everything we do. We want to continue to do that. And you know, to be fair, I'm sure you've heard a lot of companies say this. We actually do have openings in Chicago and New York. So if you're interested, we're looking for good engineers to help us on this journey. But you know, AWS keeps launching new services. How am I going to build EKS? What's that going to look like in production? What are all the parameters I need to know for this managed Kubernetes service? I don't know. This is really new. But it's a good example of something I know we're going to start playing with in a few weeks, and we have to have a plan for how we address you know, reliability of this service. For us, compliance, the IAM policies around these services. You know, to me, um, on the container side, we do a lot with IAM. ECS is, has great deep integration with IAM, but one of the cool things is they're talking about that on the EKS side as well, security groups and policies all the way down to the pod level. This, you know, to us, we're all in on AWS 
Hearst made a huge bet on AWS, and I think it's a fantastic bet, and we're with them on that journey. And for us, that means IAM is the right tool set right now for a lot of our security work, and you know, we, we want to understand every new service we bring up, how do we make sure the policies are right? As we start with Dynamo for only a few little use cases, how do we then evolve it to moving to critical data workflows? Now, you know, another one that we work with Hearst within their AWS organizations, this is something I, I do want to keep seeing them evolve policy and the ability to implement security policy within organizational units. So I can push down you know, my policies for Fitch ratings against their suite of accounts, but leave Fitch information services a little bit more free to move. This is something that we're going to be working on, I think, a lot in the next few months. Another, you know, learning to build cloud native. This is, again, a bit tired, but uh, you know, how, do we, how do we learn to build cloud native? Well, I guess it also changes every year what that means. I think it was containers two years ago. It's serverless now. Now we have serverless databases, also pretty cool. But how do you keep evolving and how do you work with your development teams to make sure that you understand what the shift to you know, on-demand resources means? And for us, you know, we, we actually leverage Kubernetes and our Fitch Solutions team was a big early adopter of that. But containerization, because a lot of our applications don't have heavy concurrency, Containerization is a great way for us to get cost savings and density while still keeping fault domains isolated between all these applications. Something we're gonna keep pushing, but we wanna also understand, do we wanna go further towards prescriptive environments with PaaS? What other tools are out there that we can you know, help the developers work in? So, you know, I think if we look at, <laughs> We're supposed to be talking here about how we deliver business services better. I think moving to AWS and being more, you know, version control driven and just more explicit about our systems makes them, makes them run better, and that's a better business service. But there's other things we can do as well, and that AWS has really helped us with. One of these that I want to highlight first is nimbleness. Now, CDN is not something we had needed, again, for the, the demands of concurrency within the US. But we wanted to understand how CDN improved performance to geolocate resources for our users in APAC, you know, getting our website to load better there. One of the neat things for us was we didn't know if we wanted a multi-year contract on CDN. We could actually just spin up CloudFront and start testing it understand how it works, and if it's a problem, we can spin it down, and we just pay again for that resources that we use. That's hugely enabling. Any of these services, you know, again, I encourage you to use them and, and figure out how that can make you, again, try more things and fail faster. Productivity is an interesting one as well, because, and, and some of this is not just about being in AWS, but how all these disciplines come together in infrastructure as code. These templates can be incredibly time consuming to build, whether it be chef recipes or cloud formation. But if you do them right in a modular way where you're, you're targeting frameworks that you run, the ability to stamp out those frameworks again and again for your development teams is you know, hugely enabling for getting new services up and online. Performance is one that, like, you know, our, our website moved and it ran faster, but there's other things in performance that are just really crazy for an analytics company. We do a lot of work in, you know, whether it be corporate, uh, corporate debt obligations, mortgage-backed security analysis, and so forth. We do a lot of that work nowadays, or we're pushing towards doing a lot more of that work in R or in Python for doing deeper analytics. We don't have necessarily enormous data sets, but when we're crunching mortgage markets on hundreds of cities within, within the US, Amazon gives us that ability to spin that up and really parallel. And as of this year, where we used to talk about packing an hour of compute time, now we can do that on the second with compute costs. We can parallelize that our work in containers as far as it goes. And that's something that we've been 
playing a lot with our, anal uh, with our analytics teams on, and I think that's gonna be huge for us. I think that's, to me, that was one of the cool things about coming to Fitch is you know, there is an analytical culture within our company, and it's something that I think we found a really good match in cloud reaches. You know, they were scientists, they were disciplined engineers, and that matched well to the culture in Fitch. And I guess lastly, you know, this accountability is something that's been really cool with AWS. I talked about the accountability of, you know, financials, being able to say this is this is what your application costs to run or what this database is costing. But in certain cases, you get the ability to also hand over in sandbox environments and development environments control to build things and to let people say, I tested this myself, I knew it worked transition some of that to your development team. And I think that's, you know, empowering people to be autonomous and accountable is huge. And we have a ways to go with this, but this is something that, you know, I think is hugely uh, important in the journey as well. So with that, you know, I think if I were to call out a few things along the way that might, you know, that again might be useful to you, the executive buy-in early on that we built around, you know, getting the executives on board, presenting how this worked, how this worked financially, but also what we were gonna gain as an organization. And, and this predated me, but I was benefited hugely from how well this was done. The, you know, you know beyond that, this migration factory, the way we built our organizational structure to have that communication between all of our teams, that, that worked really well. As Clark mentioned, you know, no one likes pushing an application, but once our executive team saw us moving up applications because they were ready early and saw that we had hit all 18 or so of those tasks that we built out in JIRA for that application, had the checklists in place, um, for what it's worth, we used Confluence checklists for that. that. That was great because, as Clark said, when, we came, when it came time to say, you know what, this isn't moving this Wednesday, we have to move it this Friday, or we're pushing these applications off for two weeks, they knew we weren't just saying it because we hadn't gotten our work done. They knew that there was a reason, and that was, that was important because we didn't break our engineers along the way working nights as well. Now, I think that, you know, that automation we had around JIRA, there are some various plugins that do epic automation, but that was really awesome for us as well. And, you know, again, just make sure along this whole journey that you keep asking yourself, are you doing it right? And remember, right isn't the same way you did it necessarily last week, because AWS keeps launching stuff that may allow you to do this better. So, you know, with that, Thank you guys, and you know, we'd love to take your guys' questions if anyone has any. Yeah, if you're interested in more uh, about CloudReach, please come see us at booth uh, 2429 for sure. Thank you. Thanks for sharing your uh, story with us. I'd like to go a little bit deeper into like who did the migration work and was moving to the cloud your singular focus? And the context for my question is uh, the company I work for, we're moving to the cloud. It's one of many top line goals that we have. And there's this unhealthy tension between the development teams doing the necessary work to move their apps and services to the cloud and delivering new function and feature. So I'd like to understand like how you manage that. Did you take time off from yeah. any function and feature or? Yeah, so it's a good question. It's something that we actually discussed um, while we uh, prepared this presentation. And I would say it depends on your business goals. Do you have a data center that you have to evacuate for some reason? Um, a, a data center migration is usually handled by infrastructure. Mm -hmm. A cloud migration has to be IT wide. The development teams tend to know more about the applications. They have a lot of institutional knowledge. Um, if there are features, we built it into our migration factory that if they were needed by the business, we actually would say, you know what, this ratings workflow app can't go in week five like it's scheduled to because we have a, a, a critical deployment 
we would work with CloudReach to keep the velocity going by moving that application out, let's say, to week nine, and then we would move things back in so that we would keep up our velocity because we knew we had a certain number of applications right. to move in six months. Um, there's no really easy answer to it. Um, I think it really depends on your business needs and, and why you're moving to the cloud. Um, but I've, I've talked to a lot of people and a lot of people view it as a data center migration and it's just, it's not. Um, you, you can't isolate the development teams away from it. Right. Everyone has to, but we I worked think, in conjunction with CloudReach very closely on that. Yeah, and I think that the actual migrations were, you know, really handled between Clark's team and, and my team. And part of that, again, was making sure my team was fully tooled as we came out of this. So. We didn't do every migration, but certainly every time a new technology was in play for a migration or it was one of our most critical applications, that was actually usually our cloud engineers doing that migration work. Now, for us, we had this executive buy-in, and part of that was a strategy that we wanted to get out by X date for the you know, getting out of a certain amount of data center by the end of this year. And, and we've hit all of our targets there, which is awesome. I think. You know, one of the things that we did and Clark was, was awesome with was he, you know, we reached out before planning all of these sprints and said, give us your major milestone development needs for the next three months. So it wasn't even, you know, we did also shift during the process, but initially we said, okay, this month is a huge development set for those applications. We'll just not even consider them until, you know, month two or three. I would add, I would add on to that just on your developer question. Assuming you can get that executive buy-in, having them convince application teams to think of the migration as an actual product release instead of just the migration helps with that a lot. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, first, thanks for sharing your story and congratulations on your success. Um, I'm curious, how much of the applications were more like lift and shift versus being re-architected or redesigned to be more cloud native? So we had a timeline. Um, we wanted to get out of our data center. We have certain things that we want to do out on AWS. In a few cases, we refactored apps, but it was mostly a lift and shift because we wanted to keep our velocity up. Um, a couple of circumstances led us to have to do application upgrades but we didn't really refactor much. Um, I mean, now we are thinking about refactoring. We're, we're working with things like DynamoDB and Kinesis and, and really thinking what, uh, where we want to go with AWS. But we didn't want this to be like an 18-month migration because we're caught refactoring and then moving out. We wanted to get the stuff out, to, out of the data center into AWS and then refactor out there. So, so how much of your applications were already, let's say, service-enabled with APIs or containerized microservices and all that stuff? Or is that yet to come? So I think, um, I mean, we do have a decent amount of that uh, in play. You know, for, for us, the, the journey to microservices, we, we start a lot of this stuff. We seed it in our Fitch solutions, or Fitch information services business, because this isn't our core ratings. Our core ratings pipeline, actually, we just, we're, we're now moving to microservice architecture after we moved out there and using Dynamo and some other stuff. but. You know, I think I do want to just uh, add, when we talk about lift and shift, there's, there's a few different, you know, that means different things to different people. So from an infrastructure side, we refactored how we deploy the servers, how we do OS configuration, how we do uh, service deployment on them, but we didn't change the application. The application code itself got lifted over in most cases. A few times we did snapshot some Windows systems just because no one knew how that application that ran on Windows 2008 still ran. So, you know, we imaged it and used it, but that was, you know, I think less than five applications out of 100. Yeah, that's a good point. We, we, we didn't refactor the applications, but we did write CloudFormation wherever possible. And replatforming often gets think of or thought of as less complex, which it is, than refactoring, but... Um, with older applications, if you've got a lot of older applications and you need to replatform, when you're making a schedule, it's probably a little more complex than you think, especially if there's deep institutional knowledge, just getting it over the line because upgrading that application code can, if, if someone has left, the institutional knowledge can take a while. Thank you. I have a question. <laughs> So, so my, my team is, is the IT group. Uh, we're in the middle of, of this data center migration, getting rid of the data centers. 
go into the cloud, I'm gonna save a ton of money, supposedly. Um, my IT team, some have made the transformation into AWS and the learning knowledge, some are lagging behind. How did you, did you have a, that kind of cultural pull back and forth within your groups? So we had a few people that embraced it, um, that went for training, that you know got multiple certifications uh, at reInvent last year, um, and then we had a few that, that really didn't embrace it. And so when I, I restructured, I created the cloud engineering organization, um, brought in Chris to run it, those that had shown a real deep interest and, and curiosity out there, that's who formed his team. Uh, the other uh, uh, individuals, if they're good in some other capacity like network engineering or you know traditional Windows management, uh, you know perhaps security, um, you know we we restructured. Um, honestly, some people are are going to go on the journey, and some people aren't. Um, you know, you, you, you really want those people, though, that are, are intellectually curious, I would say. And I think to add to this, and this is not my first time, you know, on this journey, I think one of your, you know, as IT management, and, you know, maybe this is just um, me on a soapbox in general, but it's your job to offer learning opportunities whenever you can. I think the, you know, the old adage is, you know, well, if I train my people, they might leave, and, you know, the response is, well, if you don't train them, they might stay. And at the end of the day, you have to give them the tools, you know, try to partner with AWS. They have some really good training programs, or you know, there are a lot of great like you know, video training sites towards all these AWS tooling. Look at, you know, if you're getting in contracts with companies like Chef, see if you can get training as part of those as well. Give, give the people all these tools and give them time to do some training in the office if you can. You know, try to make sure that they feel that you're invested in their training and them coming along for the journey. And then, and then you know, you have to see who comes along at that point as long as you do that. Thank you. Uh, hi, guys. Thanks for sharing. Uh, just one, one question. Um, a big part of, I guess, migration like this is understanding what what you've got to migrate, how they all interact, how they work together and so on, and ultimately how you plan and, and move those. How did you go about discovering what was out there, how it all worked together so that you could, could plan that migration so it was as successful as, as you say? So I think this is actually something that, you know, if we could go back and do it again, we would have spent a little bit more time on the interconnectivity mapping that you sort of alluded to. We did a, a good audit of our systems and you know, you do network sweeps, and there's a lot of tools out there, and AWS has a bunch of discovery tools around this. Um, but, you know, I think there's a lot of discipline around interviewing all the application teams, making sure our executives, you know, our executives had made sure they, they'd communicated, this is, this is like the key priority for 2017, make sure you're available and really engaged in this process. And, you know, you'll find people that are more or less engaged, but, you need to balance, and I think we, we should have used a little bit more of that technical tooling for mapping early on. We did start applying it when we found that we didn't have always all of that interconnection information. Um, but, and I yeah. would say that, yeah, understanding the application landscape is important, and you know, in a past life we used something like Cloudscape that was before the AWS Discovery Service was available. Even that, we ran it for a few months and we missed those quarterly jobs where we didn't realize that SAP was talking to this, you know, to this system. And so really, I would say also testing and making sure that you have the right visibility once you migrate out is important too, because you want to know about that interconnectivity that you might have missed that now you have to open up a security group or something for. Um, you know, so it's all about visibility, but we've used services in the past and, and honestly just working directly with, with application teams. Yeah, I would recommend, even if you use the tool, definitely validate with application teams, have multiple sources of truth, because that will definitely fill some gaps that the, the tool will miss. Sorry, guys. Uh, I have a question uh, for who requests this migration. That means it's from IT department or from the business request. So for, for instance, uh, is, is there any application they have uh, against this migration? They want to stay in the your private data center, not to the cloud, not to AWS. Um, I mean, for us, we had we had buy-in sort of all around. I think the hmm, yeah. I mean, just a question: Is there any case in your migration 
any application you said, I don't want to go to the AWS? I think so, we, uh, yeah. we left a few components. I think uh, our Oracle story resonated this morning in yeah. Jesse's talk. I mean, wherever possible, we're not concerned about you know, security. We, we actually are we're confident that we're securing our environment better on AWS than we did in our own data center. Mm -hmm. um, you know, for now that we're looking at multi-region, things like GDPR and data sovereignty are coming up. Um, that might drive where you, where you move it. Um, in some cases, we talk to regulators in foreign uh, uh, countries that are, are, have expressed some concern, but everyone's moving. So it's getting more widely adopted. We didn't make a conscious decision to move anything because we didn't feel we couldn't. Mm -hmm. um, some of the complexity, such as some of our unstructured file shares, um, one of our large databases, the Oracle licensing uh, change that they, that they announced earlier this year, that Andy Jassy alluded to this morning. Um, those drove us to leave certain things behind in our data center, but actually in 2018 and 19, it's our goal to completely evacuate. Okay, so normally it's, uh, your IT go to the application set. How about we migrate your application go, uh, to the AWS or the business application your IT. So can you migrate our application to the AWS? Does any two case happen same time? I think we were. Who trigger? I mean, uh, the question is, who triggered this migration from? So IT? for us, it was it was an everything story. So it was, you know, our our CTO and who sits on our executive board, you know, made this direction, and this was, you know, part of that first six months is really selling this as an overall project for everything we could. Okay. Um, so so really that was. You know, I mean, it came from the executive board, so that's a business-driven decision, I guess. But it was, you know, all hands on deck. And I'll and I'll I'll, I'll state as well. We were trying to um, during the session. We were trying to stress the executive buy-in was critical. Um, so everyone in the company knew what we were doing. We partnered with corporate communications to um, actually announce milestones. Uh, you know, on our internet. I mean, this is a 3,500-person company. Um, so the executive buying was critical as well when we decided to, to um, increase our velocity um, as part of the migration because we knew they had confidence in us and we knew that they had bought into what we were doing. They saw the business benefit. Yeah. So I hope that answers your question. Oh, thank you. Okay, thanks. Uh, two finance questions. Uh, I do a lot of capacity management, spend most of my time with finance. Um, so while you were prepping the business on the first six months, how did you really handle the conversation of the shift between CapEx and OpEx? You know, it's, I think it's interesting that, you know, your CFO actually made a decision, you know, since, you know, one of the struggles I have is, right, you, you see a huge shift, especially when you have some costs sitting in data centers and you're moving from a CapEx model to an OpEx model and you still have the pushing assets sitting on the sheet. Uh, you know, so it'd be interested to see how you handle that. So. Um... This is the second migration that I'm doing in my first company. Uh, it was a really difficult thing to explain. Here at Fitch, we worked on a 10-year uh, net present value, uh, actually cost model. And so we, we showed that you know, reducing our CapEx, increasing our OpEx, and being more flexible out there, we projected cost, we forecasted what we were gonna be spending, and we proved to the team that it was cost effective, essentially. It was a positive NPV. Um, it, the question did come up a few times, and uh, Chris mentioned his monthly CloudFin uh, meeting. That's critical because we have actually someone in that meeting that reports up into the CFO. He's very aware of what we're spending. Um, our CapEx has honestly gone down to almost zero on the application, you know, the infrastructure application side. Still, I'm, well, I'm spending some on the, on the corporate uh, enterprise side. But um, all in all, you know, it's, it, it is apples and oranges, but it's all dollars at the end of the day. Yeah. And that's how we made them feel comfortable, by being overly transparent, I would say. And also today, now that you're operating in Amazon, you know, is you know the cloud center of excellence team managing RIs at the enterprise level? Or you manage, or you letting application teams buy RIs? If you're doing RIs at the application level, you know, especially now with you know regional RIs being applied to multiple instance types, and also through multiple accounts, uh, you know, how are you really handling that showback? I'm guessing you, know, you use cloud health. You mentioned cloud health before, so you're leaning on them for the algorithm uh, of, so of calculation. We're actually, you know, we're pretty early on our RI uh, story. We, you know, addressed the applications that we knew were sized just so, uh, first and foremost. So I think, you know, for us right now, we were just targeting the, the cheapest ones yeah. for on a one-year scale. Uh, and we, we have the benefit of being able to pre-buy the whole thing and finance help us amortize that 
you know, that's not always the case at all yep. companies, but um, I am going to be cut short in a second, I think. But uh, you know, that was um, you know, that was a real that's that's a real big part of our journey actually for the coming year is is keeping yeah. a quarterly RI schedule. And for us right now, we're just looking to do a quarterly program. We've, we've started the quarterly review of RIs, yeah. and then what we've also learned is if you get creative with spinning things up and down, you actually save more money like that staying on on demand versus RIs. So we're also going through that calculation. But our goal is we, we had our first quarterly round of RIs um, a few months ago. And we're, we're, because keeping up with that is a bit of, there is a bit of overhead yeah. there. So we're, we're, we're on a quarterly. Uh, All right. Thank you. Right. Thanks. All right. All right. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thanks.